Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Bill Herring, a therapist based in Atlanta, is a former board member of the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, also known as SASH. He co-authored a book on the history of the sex addiction field. In 2017, he published an article that we'll be discussing together on his framework, Problematic Sexual Behavior. In 2019, Bill received the Sash Carnes Award for overall contributions to advancing understanding of this field of study. Today, I am so pleased to have Bill Herring with me. Bill is from Atlanta, and we met a few months ago at the Sash Conference, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health in Seattle. And I've heard about Bill for many years, but I think it was actually the first time we met in person, which is exciting since we aren't doing many things in person nowadays. And I approached Bill and he was kind enough to say that he would join us today to talk about his model, which is the PSB model or the problematic sexual behavior model. So thank you so much, Bill. Welcome to our podcast. Andrew, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. So it's my pleasure, really, because I have been in the field a long time, as you have, and what you're presenting is, uh, is refreshing, and, and I really want our listeners to hear about it. So why don't we just jump right into it? If, if you could tell us about the problematic sexual behavior framework that you've put together to help people understand their sexual behavior. Absolutely, and I appreciate that you said framework the second time. Oftentimes, people do say model and feel like that they're interchangeable, and as I'll get to in a few minutes, a framework and a, and a model are slightly different. I guess I will go ahead and say a model tends to have a theoretical underpinning to it, and a framework is just, it is just that. It is the very basics, the very building blocks, the foundational elements of what we then build models upon. So this framework is a way to identify or help a person to self-identify what aspects of their sexual behavior is actually problematic. And I use the word problematic to distinguish that sometimes sexual behavior that takes a person away from how they want to live is not necessarily what we would call pathological. It's not necessarily coming from some diagnosable uh, disease or so forth. It is just, it is a problem for them. And so I have long reflected on what makes behavior problematic and specifically what makes sexual behavior problematic. And so that formed the, the basis of this framework that essentially has five elements to it. It seems fairly comprehensive to say that a person's sexual behavior is problematic if one or more of five conditions are met. And the very first one is that a person's behavior is going outside of their commitments. By its very nature, if a person is breaking a promise, their behavior is problematic no matter what else you could say about it. 
Um, the second category is if a person's sexual behavior is going outside of their own value system. And again, whatever else we could say about that person's behavior, anytime we're acting outside of our values, it's a problem. Uh, the third criteria would be if a person's sexual behavior is, is, is not fully within their control, if they have diminished self-control, which is again where, not again, but it's where most sex addiction models land. And we'll come back to that. The fourth of five char characteristics of problematic sexual behavior would simply be behavior that is consistently resulting in negative consequences. Uh, the idea is that uh, a person may engage in behavior that's not breaking any promises and maybe the value is their value is consistent with their behavior and maybe they're in control, but they're continually getting into negative consequences, uh, arrested for the prostitution or you know, whatever might be negative. So the fifth category of problematic sexual behavior uh, in, invokes a, a, a social component in it, and it's any behavior that does not protect other people, or really, let me, let me say, any behavior that's not responsible. And responsible has a tricky meaning to it, because if we say irresponsible, it sounds sort of like a moral judgment. But really, in the, in the field of sexual health, responsible sexual behavior has three categories to it. It means that, one, everybody is consenting to the behavior, Two, nobody is, is being exploited by that behavior. And three, everybody's being protected from, 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 from uh, undue physical you know, consequences. So putting those five different categories together, uh, I have found to be a, an effective and almost even an elegant way to help people tease out what exactly about their behavior is problematic when they, when they say that. And it seems like in my experience, different people will land on one or more, sometimes all five, but, uh, but all five are not necessary in order to meet what I would consider criteria for needing help. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the essential element of the, uh, of the framework. Sure. No, that's super helpful. Thank you for clarifying, by the way, that a framework is different than a model. And, and I love what you said, because it sounds like for you, it's, it's more about identifying folks that come in to see you and, and helping them understand what doesn't fit in their life, basically. So that, that's really, really important. I'm wondering if we could back up just for a moment because our listeners are, are just meeting you and this is a new term, problematic sexual behavior to this podcast actually, and, and to many people. And I'm wondering if you can share just a little bit of the context of how you develop this framework. Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, the, to come back around to it, I, I think the word problematic is, is useful because it simply denotes that there is some problem in the, in the relationship between a person's sexual behavior and the rest of their life. In my experience as a CSAT, Certified Sex Addiction Therapist, I've worked with just many, many people whose behavior meets one or more of those characteristics, often all five of them. And yet there are people, as almost any therapist will recognize, who have a difficult time grasping onto the word addiction initially, and people resist the word sex addiction. And so I find that labels can sometimes prevent a person from getting help as much as encourage a person to get help. So this framework tries to do away with labels in place of descriptions. 
And so when engaging a person in these five categories, it allows them to independently say, yes, my behavior is problematic for these reasons. And that helps immediately to set goals. And the goals being for a person to, to have their sexual behavior be consistent with their commitments, consistent with their values, consistent with self-control, uh, not having negative consequences and being responsible. So it's a very goal-directed uh, uh, framework that by its very nature immediately sets out what a person is looking to do that would you know, achieve that goal. Um, I have found that over the years, many people who are struggling with their sexual behavior may not fully meet what I would consider full criteria of being a sex addict. I, and just, I've written about this a pretty good bit that I think we have to acknowledge that some people do this behavior for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes it's because they just do it. It is, it is, they're not necessarily addicted. I would just say, and I mean this, you know, respectfully, they have a moral deficit or they haven't really thought it through, or they have some other mental illness that's driving them, such as a bipolar disorder or something like that. There's all sorts of different reasons that people have these kinds of problems. But when we only have one language that needs to fit all of them, then it's really hard to, to shoehorn some people into that language. You know, Mark Twain said that if you give a boy a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if we just have one theory, and as you know, the predominant theory has been sex addiction, then oftentimes I think it is a tendency of therapists to, to loop all of that behavior that I've been discussing into the framework of sex addiction. And that works very well for some people and not so well for others. And I have seen clients who really, they want help. And the only model out there to get help is a sex addiction model. So they sort of contort themselves to identify as sex addicts and get all the benefit from that. I'm very pro sex addiction as a, as a, as you know, as a way to help people, but I have learned it's not the best fit for everyone. And so this workaround by just avoiding the labels and coming right into the descriptions and asking a person, so what makes this a problem for you? I think immediately bypasses having to decide what label works for that person at that moment. And so it bypasses a lot of resistance at the very beginning. So that's, that's, that's one way that came into looking at a way to, to, to give people the opportunity to get help without necessarily having them take on the label before they may be ready for it. I love all of that. And I just wanna highlight that there's enough shame and stigma out there already with these types of behaviors. And what I hear you doing is broadening the net and saying, let's not necessarily call this an illness or, or, or a disease or, or any type of pathology actually, but instead let's look at the behavior and let's see how it is seen or experienced as a problem in one's life and how do we work towards um, healing from that really so that that's again that's why I've, I invited you today because it's just so refreshing to hear another viewpoint and one based in uh, a history of the sex addiction model so it's not like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater but you're bringing different language and, and a different framework to to the mm -hmm. table which is awesome you get it exactly. And yeah. Thank you. For oh, sure, that. sure. So you told me previously about five questions that get to the heart of each of the five categories. Can you elaborate on them? 
Ab absolutely. What I worked to do with this framework was to have it to be really simple and really portable, meaning that it would fit in a lot of different environments, in a therapist's office, in a counselor's office, in an employee assistance office, or really just between two people talking uh, it can address this the extent to which the behavior is problematic by simply responding to four very conversational questions. And the very first one is simply, are you keeping your promises? And this speaks to the commitment issue. And it's pretty much a yes or no. Uh, the second question is, are you, is your behavior consistent with your values? Really, are you okay with what you're doing is basically the fundamental question. Are you okay with what's going on? People may say yes, or people say, no, this really goes against what I really want to think about myself. The third behavior is simply, are you in control of yourself? Are you in, in charge of what you're doing? Now, this one is not necessarily a like a, an on-off switch, like a light switch. This may be more like a dimmer switch, that people can be more or less in control. So, well, I'm in control except when I'm drinking, or I'm in control you know, except for these other reasons. Uh, the fourth question that speaks to negative consequences is simply, is everything okay? <laughs> How's it going? Because uh, then a person will start to say, well, I'm, you know, I've had these terrible problems with this and that. I just got fired or, you know, I'm separated, et cetera. These are the problems. And the fifth question is, is um, are you protecting everybody? And, and again, by protection, it means to make sure you're not exploiting somebody because of a power imbalance. You're getting the consent of everybody and you're making sure that people are safe from any kind of diseases. So those are just really five basic questions. Uh, are you keeping your promises? Are you okay with what you're doing? Are you in control? Is everything going okay? And are you being responsible? We're protecting folks. It covers a lot of ground. And all of those can just be very conversationally uh, stated back and forth, as opposed to filling out checklists and, and filling in bubbles and, and being in a way that's a little bit more clinical and sometimes not as personable. So that, that's the five questions right there. Questions sound simple, but I, I agree. It covers a lot of ground in a very concise way. Is there a place that our listeners, whether it be colleagues or anybody, could, um, could find those questions? Sure. Um, well, I have been very honored that SASH, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, uh, incorporated these, this, this framework and um, really, I was, I, was, I was blown away when I saw a poster that was made by SASH that had these five questions on it. And when I looked at the wall and said, I know those questions. I didn't even know what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it's on the SASH website, also on my website, which is simply billhearing.com. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, I've got a good number of articles that I've written on there. And it really, my whole practice is, is informed by this framework. So people can come to my website or obviously at any point in time, they can reach out to me in person. I love to talk. Perfect. And, and we'll also include those websites um, on our podcast um, notes as well. Um, great. So benefits. Uh, you've already started to talk about that, but what are the main benefits of this approach and why was this particular framework necessary in your opinion? Sure. Well, as we've been sort of alluding to, um, I guess I'll speak more directly to, to, to this question from a number of different angles. As you may know, in the, in the field of sexuality studies and in the field of what's broadly termed sexual health, there's been a lot of controversy about specific theories that are used. Theories of 
of uh, addiction, compulsion, obsession, all these slightly different uh, ways of looking at behavior that tend to, to spark turf wars and that there becomes this needless argument back and forth between is this addiction or is this not addiction? And in the middle of that, the person who's, who's really suffering is the person who is suffering. And so I wanted to bypass all of those turf wars and give a language that really would fit for anyone to discuss no matter what their theoretical background is. It's sort of like uh, cultures that speak different languages, unless there's a common language, there can't be collaboration. So I wanted to help provide a common theory neutral language that anyone could use to talk across the table to another clinician or just to another person in general, regardless of how their, their theory of why did a person get to this? What does a person need to do to get over this? There's lots of different models for that, but just to be able to put that together in a common language is what I wanted to, 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 to find a way to do. It was really a, 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 a puzzle that I spent probably a decade trying to unlock uh, to just really try to figure out how can we get everybody talking the same language? Because the polarization is never gonna go away. So what we need is a, is a commonality. So that, that was one of the main reasons that I wanted you know, to, to, to try to put this out. And thank you for saying earlier, this is not in competition to any other way of looking at sexual behavior. Sometimes people will ask, well, well, don't you believe in sex addiction or where does that come in? I say, absolutely, I believe in sex addiction. It fits within this framework as, a, as the third category of, of diminished control and generally has one or more of those other categories around it as auxiliary uh, problems. So that's a, uh, an example of how models, which you know, I guess we'll go back and say it, models are based upon theories and theories are predictions about what caused a behavior to be there and sort of what to do about it to get it to the, to the promised land, to the, to the goal. And this framework really allows multiple models and multiple theories to, uh, to coexist with each other so that uh, it's not necessary initially to, to come to terms with how did this happen to begin with, or even what, what are the plans for achieving these goals of these five, uh, you know, these five categories. So it just becomes this wide ranging landing pad for, for there to be discussions across theories and across models that ultimately, and this is my ultimate goal, widens access of service to people who suffer. There, as you know, there are so many more people who are suffering from the consequences of their sexual behavior than are getting help right now for all of the reasons. Uh, they don't identify as a sex addict or they can't find a resource for a sex addiction therapist or, or they just don't even think that their behavior, they don't know where they would go to talk mm -hmm. about their problems. So this is where they can go. They can go to someone who can speak to these five areas and, and in doing that, get sort of hooked in and invested into uh, their own healing process. So I just really I wanted to, we, we need to get much more help to many more people. Mm -hmm. And this is my little way of trying mm -hmm. to help bridge that, 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 that large gap. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. And what I'm also hearing is, is that in a way you're kind of like Switzerland and you are, <laughs> you're there as a sanctuary for people to, to come to and hopefully to, to talk and to, to learn from one another. And I, I love that because I think it's a beautiful metaphor. <laughs> I, I, I've been around long enough that the turf wars are, are, are really, um, they're just 
exhausting. And, and so again, I think your framework and your approach is really very invitational and, and allows for many different kinds of modalities, theories, et cetera, to, to come together and hopefully um, have, be open-minded, open-hearted to learn, because isn't that what it's all about? Thank you. I really appreciate that, that perspective. And, and it, it leads me to add one implication of this framework is that, that on several of these categories, it, you can really look at it to say that an aspect of problematic sexual behavior does not always need a sexual solution. For instance, a person whose sexual behavior is violating their commitments. They have one of two choices, and this framework doesn't lead one to the other. Any one of them works. They either need to change their behavior or they need to change their commitment. Two people may engage in the exact same behavior, and it's problematic for one and not problematic for the other based upon whether they're violating a commitment. Same with values. A person's sexual behavior is in conflict with their values. Well, if you step back enough, there's two different ways to come out of that. Change your sexual behavior or change your values. And, and people often think, well, values don't change, but, but certainly they do. As we grow and as we age, our values can change. A classic example of this, just as one, would be someone who comes in with uh, you know, what we would call same-sex attraction. And, and uh, that person may uh, feel that they're because it's going against their values that they're 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 broken and and that they are pathological they do have this pathology and it may be that and i work with people on both sides of the of the of the of the argument some people need to find a way to adjust and adapt and control and change their sexual behavior so it fits within those those deeply held values and some people find as they go further into it that perhaps their essential identity is that they come to self-identify as homosexual or bisexual, and it's a coming out process. And in that, we could call that a, a, a change or an evolution of values. So a sexual problem doesn't always need a sexual solution. And again, I think that, that's another useful uh, uh, aspect of this framework, that it doesn't guide a person other than to get them to, to, these, to these five sexual goals or these five life goals. Sure. Right, so again, I, I just, hear that it's not a one-size-fits-all at all and if anything it's it's more about allowing the the client to to find what ultimately is congruent with who they are and like you said that may be about sexual behavior it may be about larger goals or or both but but either way it's about something that was feeling problematic and, and hopefully um, healing from whatever suffering that was causing. Thank you, that's, that's it exactly. Great. Wanted this framework to be, to be utilitarian, which means it can be used by a wide range of people and very portable, mm -hmm. which means it's, you don't have to remember much to remember <laughs> this framework. And what are those 15 different characteristics? No, just, this is almost, once we talk about it, it just becomes almost evident that these are the areas. Sure. So one thing that I have been moving towards these last few years is I, I've been using the term compulsive sexual behavior much more than sex addiction. And I don't know how you feel about that, Bill, but, but I, I wanted to ask, regardless of what we call that, um, sure. how does it fit into your framework? And, and are we saying that sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior isn't a category that you utilize? Mm -hmm. Great, great question. 
I, again, I utilize sex addiction and I think it's a very valuable model. And I think that as we move along in the, in the evolution of our profession, we will probably come up with more models as we find that behavior that looks similar among populations may have slight differences that actually have different trajectories of, you know, of care. And so even within the, the, the distinction between addictive, compulsive, obsessive, slight little doctrinal differences between those, between those three that can have profound implications for people. So no matter what you call it, in either of those three terms, generically, those are all speaking to diminished self-control which is the third of the, of the five categories. So, so when I'm looking at somebody who's, a, who, who's a very clearly sexually addicted, sexually compulsive, sexually obsessive, however you wanna put that, to me that lands right in that third category, whatever else we call it, it's diminished self-control. And that client or person, I think is much more likely to say, yes, you're right. This is, I'm not in full control, as opposed to immediately needing to say, yes, this is addictive or yes, this is compulsive, mm -hmm. or yes, this is obsessive, because they may not be ready to cross that bridge yet into what label they want to give themselves. And again, at this stage, I don't want to get caught up in, in, in labels. That's why this is such a descriptive heavy uh, framework. I actually try not to even put a label on this framework. People call it, and you did as well, mm -hmm. I think, the, you know, the problematic sexual behavior framework, mm -hmm. which sort of gives it a label. And I oftentimes prefer to say the longer way around of, of uh, uh, this is a framework that describes categories of problematic sexual behavior. It's much longer to say that, but that in and of itself is a description. And I find the more we stay with descriptions and stay away from labels, we initially, again, we, we are allowing for there to be much less opportunity for resistance mm. by clients. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I fully addressed your, your, your question. If I left a piece out, please come back. <laughs> no, what, what I took from what you're saying is that we're trying to get away from dogma. Absolutely. And, and to really describe the behaviors in such a way that, that folks will come to us and, and not be intimidated or not feel like somehow we're going to pathologize them, but instead to really give them a, a safe place to be able to talk about what's troubling them. You speak it exactly, that, that, that's, that's spot on. Thank you for that, uh, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wanna go back to what you said, because I think it's so important to emphasize this, that this framework is heavy on descriptions, but it's light on labels. And I think that's a beautiful way to describe something that is very inviting, very embracing of someone who's dealing with these kinds of issues. Is that by design, would you say, from oh, yes. the beginning? Yes, very much from the, from the beginning. It was one of the criteria that I felt was going to be critical. And in doing that, one of the stumbling blocks was in that fifth category with the phrase responsible sexual behavior. That in itself can mean a lot of different things. It can be almost a label, which is why I subdivided that into three descriptive categories. You don't exploit anybody. You protect everybody and you get the consent of everybody. Those in and of themselves are descriptions. So you're, you're, you're absolutely correct about the reason by design. This was a just description heavy and, and very label light or even la label non-existent framework. I love that. That's, that's fantastic. 
So in general, since you've been working with this framework for a while now, how has it been received and what are some applications that it's been used for? Sure. Thank you for that, that question. Well, I was very honored that that uh, SASH, when they when the organization was revising its certification process for the uh, the advanced training in problematic sexual behavior (ATPSB), that training, the initial training, predated this framework that that we're talking about. It was several years before that. And that was part of what sparked my interest. And then I did this for several years, the phrase problematic sexual behavior was being sort of bandied around, but nobody really knew what they were talking about. Or, or let me put it that, differently. It was either used as a euphemism for sex addiction or people were, it was just, it was pretty undefined. And even in the first uh, example, the, the first uh, uh, iteration of the, uh, of the, problematic sexual behavior training that SASH did. So when they revised it, 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 was, it was fate, I guess, that this framework was available to SASH. And it was, it was incorporated really as one of the foundational characteristics of SASH's ATPSB, or Advanced Training Problematic Sexual Behavior uh, course. The very first, I guess you could say, lecture that a person who's seeking that certification is going to to listen to is going to be me talking for an hour and a half about this whole framework so that the rest of the training that SASH gives really builds upon that in all of the different categories, pornography and infidelity and so forth, and continues to come back to look at how is this problematic. So it, it, was, great, it was a great honor that SASH really picked us up and ran with it. And so I'm you know, very happy about that, um, honored by that. In my own pr professional work, uh, one, one application that has been very helpful is in, uh, in my practice has been in the way I do group therapy. I run a lot of therapy groups for men. I currently have seven active therapy groups each week that with seven men apiece who are all who have all come into my practice because some aspect of their sexual behavior was problematic in, in one or more of these areas. And as much as possible, I try to get men into groups because as you know, Shame is so high, isolation is so high, uh, that, that the ability to have connection, to have affiliation, to have mutual support, to know that you're not the only person struggling with this, or to reduce shame for all of the reasons uh, for, for developing the greater attachment skills and intimacy skills. Group therapy is really where it's at. And I have found that using this framework gives the group the benefit of having people who identify as sex addicts and people who don't identify as sex addicts being in the same room together, the same group together, and there being no difference in, in the conversations that are going on. We could pretty much, you know, after a while, I might not even remember who does identify as an addict and who doesn't because everybody's identifying with the sexual health goals of living within their commitments, living within their values, living with self-control, and, and, and living with, you know, being sexually responsible. So I think what it does is it narrows the gap between the population of men who identify as sex addicts and who often feel very different from the normal, you know, range of men. It narrows the gap between them and other men who don't identify as, as being sex addict, who then find that they're not much different from the people who do. So it really narrows the circle between the identified and the non-identified sex addicts in a way that makes it almost immaterial 
And so the people who are going to 12-step groups can pass along all of their experience, strength, and hope to the people who are not sex addicts. And those people can really normalize for the others that these, these are common issues that so many men, excuse me, so many people, but in my work, it's almost always men, that so many men struggle with. So it's a very non-pathologizing way to bring men together in a very intimate circle, often well beyond any any uh, opportunity they've had before in their life. As, as you know, as men can drop their guard with each other and open up and be vulnerable with each other and come to trust each other and unpack what has been so you know so deeply inside of them and really come to trust. And I will even say, love each other. It is a it is a a a, a medicine that just cannot be uh, just cannot be surpassed. It's uh, it, it, it is very, very heartening over the years to, to see these men, no matter how they, what language they use to identify, come to love and take care and support each other and, and live out and manifest those, those sexual health goals. So that's how I apply it in my, in my practice. Sure. I mm -hmm. am so glad you said that because many of my listeners know that, that I'm a huge proponent of group therapy and that I believe it's one of the most underutilized forms of therapy and, and kind of the best kept secret. A lot of folk, people don't even know about it. And, and to hear you talk about it with such passion and, and to hear about the work you're doing, using your framework. And, and I agree, I, I, I think eventually it's, it's so much about repairing attachment ruptures and, and, and then finding how to give and receive love is actually at the core. So mm -hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. It's very um, kind of gives me goosebumps to think about the, the type of feeling that goes on. And uh, I appreciate you mentioning that. Well, it's very rewarding on my end. I, I become inspired by these men. I know. That, that's the great secret that I tell them quite, quite a bit, that I learn a lot and, and, uh, and grow as a man as well, watching these men come to life. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're definitely our teachers. They are definitely our teachers. Yeah. If, if there was one thing that you would like our folks listening to this podcast to take with them, what might that be? Oh my goodness, what a, sometimes the simple questions can be the most difficult to, to answer. I suppose within, from, from what we're talking about here is to not get too hung up on labels and to really look at sort of on the down to earth model, what makes this a, what makes this a problem? Um, and, and not again, recognize that we can treat something as a problem without treating the person as a pathology. Uh, doesn't have to have a diagnosis. I had a I had a mentor many years ago who, who said, "Remember that that the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem." And so to help the person identify what the problem is and how to leverage solutions from that, I, I think it carries home the essential message of, 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 of we can inadvertently shame people and we can, and, and we can consciously help to decrease that shame and, and invite people to walk into their own sexual health vision. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I hope to see you in Atlanta in October. The SASH conference will be there. Hopefully it will uh, allow us to, to travel and to be together once again. 
but this has been fantastic. I really, really appreciate your time, Bill, and I look forward to crossing paths again sometime soon. Same here. It's been an honor and been pretty fun to have this discussion with you, Andrew. Thank you a lot. Take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. It was terrific sharing the time with my colleague, Bill Herring, and discussing this really significant topic. He can be reached through his website at billherring.com. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating. Be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected. Mm -hmm.